Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The pound's reaction to news on Brexit. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to Wall Street Week on Bloomberg Radio. I'm David Weston. Coming up this hour, we'll bring you a conversation on geopolitics with Harvard's Michelle Flournoy, plus what 2020 has in store for the world of philanthropy. But first, it was the bull market that defied a euro crisis, political earthquakes, and shaky corporate earnings. And central banks danced to a dovish beat. Now we enter the next decade with interest rates at record lows and an asset bubble that many fear is ready to pop. Let's bring in our roundtable now. We're joined by Larry Summers, former U.S. Treasury Secretary, and Roger Ferguson, President and CEO of the Teachers Insurance and Annuity Association. Larry, give us a sense of this decade that's just happened. A big run-up in the markets, particularly equity. What drove that? Part of what drove it was how weak the markets were at the beginning of the decade as a consequence of the financial crisis. Part of what drove it was we had the longest recovery we have ever had. But crucially, what drove it was that interest rates fell so low that uh, people applied a much lower discount factor to future earnings. And that inflated the price of uh, all assets, whether it was stocks, whether it was real estate, anything that promised future cash flows became more valuable as uh, interest rates came down. So, Roger, that raises the question, obviously, of are we inflating asset values through lower interest rates? So, look, I agree with Larry that, without a doubt, the big driver was the move in interest rates, uh, both here and around the world. question of are we inflating values, I think it's too strong to say that. That implies some massive bubble that's about to burst. However, what we have seen, David, is that the P.E. multiples have started to increase as well, which is suggesting that every dollar of earnings is getting a bigger and bigger return. 
So I'd be a little cautious on the word inflating, but I agree completely with Larry that you know, low interest rates were the major driver for markets. Is the market overbought when it comes to equities? I don't think it's clear that it is. I think that given what's happened to interest rates, which in my view is heavily driven by real events in the economy, more saving because more of the money's going to affluent people, less investment because the price of capital goods has come down so far. I think those are the reasons why you have lower interest rates. And when you have lower interest rates, you have higher uh, higher multiples. I'm not sure that it represents some fundamental imbalance. This certainly isn't a moment like the moment at the beginning of the decade when markets look uh, cheap. And I think we've got to recognize that because interest rates are much lower and maybe risk premiums are the same as they always are, that returns going forward are going to be substantially lower than they have been over the last decade. And that is the question. If low interest rates and starting from a low base drove the last decade, what's going to drive the next decade? I think it's going to depend on the news, and we don't know whether the surprises are going to be positive or negative. But I think if things work out as everybody expects them to, then you're going to be looking at uh, equity returns that are much lower than people have become accustomed to over much much of the last uh, generation. Uh, My guess uh, would be that uh, if you invest your money in part in stocks and in part in bonds, you're going to be looking at returns perhaps in the 5-6% range, um, which is much lower than people experienced over the last decade. And that's probably going to be an unpleasant surprise for some people. So, Roger, you're responsible for a lot of money, for a lot of pensions. People are going to count on that money over the long term. What is that thesis that Larry set out? What does that tell you about investing? Well, first, uh, a point I would have made that I didn't hear Larry make, the thing that's going to drive markets over the next several years is what's driven them in the last several. Hmm. First question is, uh, are interest rates going to remain low? Right? And so the expectation that the Fed and other central banks will be on hold for a period of time, I think, is going to continue to support equity valuations and other valuations. Uh, I think Larry is absolutely right. The return that uh, the average investor can expect in equity markets over the next two, three, five, maybe ten years is going to be somewhat lower than we had in the past. Um, that does not mean that it's going to sort of burst. It does mean that one should expect slightly lower returns. The answer to all that, though, when I think about pensions, is you want to have broad diversification. Uh, so equity, fixed income, but certainly alternatives will be another place to look. And then you're going to want to play the big global themes delta. as well. Larry, what do you think? I mean, one of the things that strikes me in the last 10 years is there's a delta. They've been cutting interest rates. Is just static low interest rates enough? That's the key point. Uh, Roger's right about diversification. Roger says they're going to be slightly lower over the next decade. I think it's a good, going to be a good deal more than uh, slightly lower. I think that people will do fine if they earn 5 or 6% on uh, their money. I think that people are going to realize that it's not going to be the kind of happy decade that we saw. I think the happy decade came in part from the positive surprise of falling interest rates. That drove up bond prices definitionally, and it drove up stock prices because falling interest rates meant higher multiples. We might see continued low interest rates, but there isn't that much room for interest rates uh, to fall starting from a 10-year of 1.8. So I don't think it's going to be nearly as bullish a period over the next decade as it has been uh, in the last. And since 
the level of interest rates is a kind of fundamental determinant of everything. Um, I don't think that um, I think diversification is absolutely the right strategy, but I don't think people are going to be able to avoid the reality that returns are going to be lower in the future than they have been in the past. We'll be back with Larry Summers and Roger Ferguson. After a decade of growth, it's clear global central bankers fear a reckoning to come. But are monetary policymakers out of ammunition? We'll discuss with our roundtable next. I'm David Weston, and this is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We continue our roundtable with Larry Summers, former U.S. Treasury Secretary, and Roger Ferguson, President and CEO of TIAA. Central banks may no longer be the only game in town. That was the sobering message from the American Economic Association's annual conference in San Diego. A decade after the financial crisis rocked the global economy, policymakers confront a risky world of what could be perpetually low growth, something Larry Summers warned about in a speech to the IMF back in 2013. So, Larry, I guess congratulations that you were right, but I'm not sure you wanted to be right. Secular stagnation isn't uh, good news. It suggests much more profound trade-offs between rapid economic growth and financial stability and fiscal prudence than we thought we had. and raises all kinds of questions for macroeconomic policy uh, going forward. But look, what's happened relative to the time when I put forth that secular stagnation hypothesis in 2013 is we've had bigger deficits than people thought. We've had lower interest rates than people expected. We've had more credit growth and higher asset prices than people expected. So the accelerator's been on the floor, but the car hasn't gone very fast. We've had lower growth and lower inflation than people expected. And what that suggests is that the underlying energy that the private sector generates is much less than uh, it used to be, that we've been able to give some energy, but only by having rising debt-to-GDP ratios, only by having quite extraordinary monetary policies and low interest rates. And there's a question how long that lasts, and there's also a question of what the long-run side effects of that are. You know, people say that the so-called two to re- neutral interest rate mm-hmm. has declined by two or three percentage points. What I've been able to show in some recent research is that if we hadn't been running up the national debt globally, that probably that real nat- neutral interest rate would have declined by four or five mm-hmm. uh, or six or seven even uh, percentage points. So there's a fundamental structural challenge around the fact that people are living longer, more of the money is going to people who have high savings rates. And at the same time, as you see with uh, my cell phone that costs $500 and has 100 times as much computing power as the whole Apollo project, capital goods are getting cheaper and cheaper. And so the money sloshes into existing assets leading to asset price inflation, but with limited economic energy. It's a little bit like the plight of uh, Japan or 
some, or you might even call it a monetary black hole. So, Roger, as an investor, how do you process all that? Uh, basically, I think Larry's saying we've kept it growing, but basically running up the credit card. No, look, I think Larry's points are certainly well taken in terms of what happened in the last decade. Uh, the way you process it is to say two things. One is, is there going to be a fundamental change anytime soon? Uh, in particular, you know, what we haven't talked very much about is one of the things that's kept rates so low is inflation. And so inflation, for a variety of reasons, has been a no-show, which has allowed central banks to continue to be you know, very, very accommodative and to drive down interest rates. So the way you play it is, first, is that picture going to change? Are interest rates going to start picking up anytime soon they have to worry about? Secondly, as I said before, you know, what are the asset classes that are going to benefit or not benefit? And so you're going to have to be thinking you know, much more cleverly about you know, how you differentiate. You also are looking for, is this, a, this has been a global phenomenon. Is the U.S. still the best place to be, or should we be looking at different emerging markets? How should we think about it? So again, I think this is the time where you move from the broad general down to a much more narrow, much more focused, much more particular theory. Roger, it strikes me that you are an investor, but you also were vice chair of the Fed. Right. Uh, have the central banks basically done what they could do, uh, essentially? Yeah. I mean, they've really kept a lot of stimulus, monetary right. stimulus. And have they basically done everything they can do? So, look, I think the general consensus, and I share it, is that the last recovery depended much too heavily on central banks. Um, uh, even here in the U.S., where we had some fiscal stimulus, in hindsight, a lot of folks think maybe we should have done more and kept it going. Certainly, if one looks in Europe, um, clearly the, you know, we'd say central banks were asked to do too much. So, yeah, I think too much weight has been put on the shoulders of central banks. They responded by doing a couple of things. One is using their regular tools, i.e. called interest rates, and then, two, using uh, some unusual tools, some new tools, quantitative easing for sure, building up the size of their balance sheets, going in and buying uh, a variety of, of fixed-income securities. And then they, you know, polished up the use of forward guidance. You know, what was it they said? So when you look at the debate that's going on, the question is, uh, is that enough? And will that be sufficient the next time around? And I think that's really a question that we former and current central bankers are worried about. Larry, this is something that was uh, the topic of discussion at the AEA, that conference that you attended in San Diego. One of the things that you raised, I believe, others have raised as well, is something called semi-automatic stabilizers. Basically, as I understand it, automatic fiscal injection when certain things turn south. Is that a realistic alternative? It better be. Um, <laughs> ben Bernanke gave a speech out there, which I think was a kind of last hurrah for the central bankers. He argued that monetary policy will be able to do it the next time. I think that's pretty unlikely, given that in recessions, we usually cut interest rates by five percentage points, and interest rates today are below uh, 2%. And I just don't believe that quantitative easing and that stuff is worth anything like another uh, three percentage points. So I think we're going to have to rely on putting money in people's pockets, on direct uh, government spending. I think that's okay in a country where public investment and infrastructure are decaying so badly. But I think that's where we're going to have to look for our countercyclical energy. And what Olivier Blanchard and I were talking about when we discussed uh, semi-automatic stabilizers was the idea that rather than relying on Congress to organize itself to act each time there's an economic downturn, we should do more with rules that would lock in 
changes in spending, perhaps greater assistance to states, perhaps more assistance for people who are unemployed, perhaps working off a backlog of infrastructure investments, perhaps giving temporary tax credits for those uh, who spend, and that that kind of fiscal stimulus is going to have to be a larger part of the story. And I think it's very, I think central bankers have a very difficult road to walk. Because on the one hand, they don't want to say they're out of gas and they can't solve the problem. On the other hand, they better be giving some warning if they want fiscal policy to be ready next time. And I think that's reality that it's going to need to be. Larry Summers and Roger Ferguson will stay with us. Coming up, we turn to the world of philanthropy for a fresh perspective on what 2020 holds in store. We're joined by the chief investment officer for Carnegie, Kim Liu. That's next. I'm David Weston, and this is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We continue our roundtable with Larry Summers, former U.S. Treasury Secretary, and Roger Ferguson, President and CEO of TIAA. It's been a roller coaster start to 2020 for global markets as investors grapple with America's killing of Iranian military leader Soleimani and its aftermath. So, over and above things like prospects for economic growth, changes in monetary policy, and government spending, Investors have to be considering geopolitics that can change in an instant. Michelle Flournoy has made a career of analyzing and understanding forces just such as these. She served as Undersecretary of Policy that was under Defense Secretaries Robert Gates and Leon Panetta. Michelle's currently Senior Fellow at Harvard's Belfer Center and a Senior Advisor to the Boston Consulting Group. She joins us now. Give us your take today. This is a constantly changing story, but it really was a lot of upheaval over the last week. It seems to have calmed down. Is that a false dawn? Well, I do think the circuit breaker has been thrown on the most recent cycle of escalation between uh, Iran and the United States. But I, I think we would be foolish to think that this is over. The fundamental issues that the United States and Iran are in conflict over have not gone away. So I think what we're likely to see is a reversion to sort of previous approaches. You, we've heard that the Trump administration is going to go ahead and increase sanctions, sort of doubling down on their maximum pressure campaign. And for Iran's part, I think you can expect them to revert to their traditional playbook, which is really using more covert and clandestine 
means that give them some measure of deniability, whether it's cyber attacks or whether it's use of proxies to launch attacks on their behalf. Those are the kinds of things we're going to see in the future unless we see some kind of breakthrough that gets the parties back into negotiations. And I don't see any sign of that uh, as yet. So, Michelle, thanks for that setup. A curious question or question on my part is um, markets are very focused on headline risk. Right now, I think there's a general sigh of relief. If, in fact, the Iranians go back to uh, more covert activities, it may be that, that nothing will be visible and markets will therefore be pretty calm. So what's the possibility that the Iranians will do something over the next few weeks, months, that were really royal markets because it will be surprising, it will be large, it will be visible, and it will be clearly a, a, a direct challenge to, to the United States position. I think that's possible because, you know, where the red line has now been drawn is the killing of Americans. Um, so I think Iran understands that. <laughs> but, you know, I don't think it's out of the question that we could see another attack on either uh, oil tankers in the Gulf or oil infrastructure uh, in the region that would rattle uh, the markets. Because I think Iran understands that our partners in the region um, are vulnerable. Uh, you know, they could, they could certainly take advantage of that and launch attacks against that infrastructure again if they felt they weren't getting the right attention from the Europeans, from the U.S., they weren't getting support to try to lessen the sanctions on them, which have been crippling. Taking out Suleiman was a choice, Michelle, that President Bush rejected and that President Obama rejected, and it's a choice that President Trump made. Are we more or less secure as Americans uh, today with him dead? Um, but the consequences of, of our having engaged for the first time in 40 years, 50, 70 years, in assassination of the senior official of another government. Would you say Americans are more or less secure today as a consequence of what's happened? Look, he was a terrible man with the blood of hundreds, if not thousands, of Americans and, and many others on his hands. So in that sense, he was a legitimate target. But he, I think other presidents had the opportunity, decided not to take him out because of the second and third order strategic consequences of doing so. He was not only the head of a designated terrorist organization, he was also this, arguably the second most powerful Iranian government official. And so what this has done has basically now set the precedent uh, of assassinating a government official of a country with whom we are not formally at war. So what is to stop Iran from assassinating a four-star U.S. general or a National Security Council member when they next visit the region? It sets a terrible precedent. It opens a uh, Pandora's box on assassination. Furthermore, the way in which it was done on Iraqi soil without any coordination with the Iraqis, has now set off a set of issues there where we may very well get pushed out of Iraq and at a time when we still have work to be done with our allies in terms of fighting ISIS and making sure that they do not regenerate and start attacking U.S. interests and facilities around the region. Thanks to Harvard senior fellow Michelle Flournoy. Larry Summers and Roger Ferguson will stay with us. Coming up, 
we turn to the world of philanthropy for a fresh perspective on what 2020 holds in store. We're joined by the Chief Investment Officer for Carnegie, Kim Liu. That's next. I'm David Weston, and this is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We continue our roundtable with Larry Summers, former U.S. Treasury Secretary, and Roger Ferguson, President and CEO of TIAA. Each week, we welcome a guest with a somewhat different perspective on the big stories that we're covering. This week, it's the perspective of one of the most prominent foundations in the country, the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Kim Liu is Carnegie's chief investment officer, responsible for investment management and oversight of some $3.5 billion in assets. Earlier in her career, Ms. Liu managed private equity for the Ford Foundation. And last year, institutional investor named her CIO of the year. She joins us now. From the point of view of a foundation, how is what you do different from what we're talking about? How is it the same? So one of the things that I heard that was particularly concerning, because I think it's true, is when Roger was talking about the fact that expectations for returns over the coming 10 years is probably going to be significantly less. And Larry made the same point. And so there is consensus around the fact that because interest rates are so low, the expectation is that returns may be more modest. And for a foundation, that's death by a thousand cuts because we are mandated to give away 5% a year. So unless we can feel pretty confident that we can receive a 5% return, then that is a slow declining of our portfolio. And really, it really puts our grantees at risk because we'd have less and less to provide for them over time. And so that is a much worse scenario, quite frankly, for us than if we had a big decline. Because if we had a big decline, we reset our payout and then we'd slowly see it rise back up again. But right now, there's a general expectation that we're going to bleed assets slowly over time. And so um, pretty concerning for the foundation community. So Kim, what are your options? Do you take on more risk? Uh, Do you change your liquidity or duration? I mean, what can you do to address that issue? We're looking for more active management. And we're looking for picking, be it sectors or opportunities that we think offer us the opportunity to outperform. Traditionally, foundations and endowments have put a lot of their assets in alternatives. And that has been possible because we are long-term investors. And so we don't have to worry about the short-term nature of the market. We spend much less time thinking about what's going on in the stock market and in the bond market in any one time. And in fact, we can make investments in things that we think are underpriced and just hold them until they realize full value without having to report on quarters and maybe not even annually sometimes. And so what we mean by the fact that we're long-term is that we don't have to worry about what happens in the short term. We can, we can invest in things that maybe don't actually produce substantial returns in the short term because we believe that they're going to produce returns in the long run. The problem, because we have a lot less degrees of freedom, because we have so much wrapped up in alternatives, is that there is less ability to rebalance and to take advantage of things that happen in the short run. We just sort of have to set a asset allocation and stick with it. Roger, how does that work for you? Because I think TIA is big in alternatives, aren't you? We're very big in alternatives. I think we're big in alternatives for maybe some of the reasons that Kim talked about, which is we're thinking about payouts over the next 10, 20, 30 years because we're a retirement-oriented company. And so I think both of us share in common this notion that you want an investment that is going to, some of it short-term, but some of it's going to be long-term. Which leads to a question, I think the, the thing we have in common is this notion of not needing immediate liquidity. 
and you should talk about maybe there's how do you think about liquidity, your liquidity needs, how you project that, and how you drive, how that drives your investment thesis and, and activities. So liquidity is in amazingly important for us because we have no inflows of capital. And mm -hmm. so because of that, we have to plan for it. Now, we are equity biased. 85% of the portfolio is invested in some form of equities or equity-like securities with very little in fixed income securities. The issue being that we, we make sure that we have sufficient liquidity to pay our payout, 5% a year, plus the cost of running the office, plus the cost of rebalancing and meeting our other liabilities, which is a significant number of unfunded commitments as a result of having so much in alternatives. And what we think of that as ballast for the portfolio becomes an, under normal circumstances when the market doesn't behave particularly well and the Fed wants to stimulate, they lower interest rates, makes people go out and spend more money and, and makes bond prices go up. We sell the bonds, we reinvest in equities. That's how we rebalance. Now we are concerned about the fact that people will not actually go out and spend because they feel like they have to save more because interest rates are so low and rates are so low that it will not have as big an impact. And so our fixed portfolio doesn't have as much ballast as it used to have. And so that's a big concern. And there are a number of things like that which we have traditionally relied on in order for us to portfolio construct for the long term, which are not as dependable as they used to be. And so we're concerned about what that means and how we should think about things differently. I'd love to be wrong, but I think you guys are way optimistic for the next decade on alternatives. It used to be that there were only a limited number of alternatives trying to pick stocks, and there were all kinds of households making bad trades, and the alternative managers could make money, therefore. Now, there's much less so-called noise trading and many, many more alternative managers, and they're still all charging high fees. Yeah. Used to be you could give up liquidity and make private equity investments and expect to get paid for the fact that you'd given up liquidity. Now there's trillions of dollars in private equity investments, and there aren't that many more deals, so they're being bid up in uh, price. Are you really confident that by turning to alternatives, you're going to generate substantial outperformance relative to stocks and bonds going forward in the way that's admittedly been true in the past. I wonder if the game isn't losing some of its edge. I hope you're wrong, too. But I do agree <laughs> with you. I do think the game has changed. And I do think that what we've traditionally done is invest in alternatives because we believe that we can um, create value out of the noise. And you're absolutely right that there's far less inefficiency than it used to be. There's so much capital flowing into the market. There's so many different types of people sort of leveraging all the different opportunities we saw. One of the advantages that, that Carnegie has, which unfortunately Roger doesn't have, is the fact that we are small. We're only $3.5 billion. We can play in spaces that are niche spaces that capital can't flow in. It's not worth it for some um, of the larger managers to go into a market that only can support a $100 million fund or a $75 million fund. But we can play in that market. And so what we're doing is we're tending to go smaller. We're tending to go even more inefficient. It's a different risk profile. So we need to think about it differently. And we know that we are taking on more illiquidity risks because we're going into these markets which do not have the same level well, of we liquidity. Gotta remember, we do have to remember here that when you go to alternatives, you're usually paying 1%, 2% in fees, and then you're paying 20% yeah. returns. Yeah. And 
until you get those fees down, yeah. they've got to, they don't just have to outperform, they've got to outperform a lot yes. to outperform on an after-tax fee basis because nowadays, as you know, you can get into index funds and pay zero, yeah. nothing no, at all. Absolutely. And so I'm just not sure that, that for the general investor, alternatives are going to be as good going forward as they have been in the past. If we're looking for markets where there may not be the efficiency that Larry just described, what about emerging markets? There are emerging markets where there isn't as much transparency, there isn't as much efficiency, there's risk, but is that an opportunity? It is an opportunity, but it is a challenging markets to play in because what you need in those environments are good management teams. You need people who are good investors. You need aligned investments, who, who people who think in a similar way about the relationship between their investors and the markets and how they do things. And that's a hard thing to find. People have very different incentives. And quite honestly, when you're talking about emerging markets, at this point, you're talking about China. China's 50% of the emerging markets benchmark. And that is one of the areas that we have to really start to think about how markets are changing because we've relied on the fact that emerging markets could be differentiators. And we've just said that we're going to invest in emerging markets and that's going to be a form of diversification, increasingly seeing that the world is not dividing evenly between developed markets and emerging markets, and there may be other ways we should look at it. And possibly, China is a form of diversification. There's very likely to be a decoupling between the United States and China because they are going to make very different decisions about technology. And there are countries who are going to line up behind China, and then there are companies and countries that are going to line up behind the United States. And I don't really know who the winner is going to be. And we're going to have to decide how we're going to participate in those markets and provide us with some opportunities. But there are clearly a lot of risks there, it's especially risks when, um, you know, we're concerned about what's going on there. And we're concerned about the laws and the regulations and how they'll change in response to things that we do here. And it is an inordinate amount of risk, but it is a big market. It's hard to ignore it. One of the things looking back in the last decade is the tide has risen pretty well with China. Looking forward to the next decade, how far is that tide going to keep going? Well, they are slowing. But even though they're still slowing, they're still growing a lot faster than we are. And if, so if you're looking for growth, you need to go there. I also think that it's, it's not insignificant that it is a government that can control a lot of things. And it can turn on a dime in many respects. And so it can make adjustments in ways that are, that are arguably more challenging for us to make adjustments. Roger, how big an opportunity is China in the next decade? Uh, look, I think... Broadly speaking, you're right. It is growing. It is still emerging. I think the challenges have to do with transparency, the ability to you know, get your money out, depending on how you invest, um, and your very good point around you know, having teams who really understand what's going on. So I think it is absolutely still a class that one has to look at, but I'm a little more cautious, maybe, mm. uh, for those reasons. Thanks to our roundtable, Larry Summers, former U.S. Treasury Secretary, Roger Ferguson, President and CEO of TIAA, and Carnegie's CIO, Kim Liu. That's it for Wall Street Week from Bloomberg Radio. Coming up next week, Afsani Beschloss and Sam Palmasano will join us around the table. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.